0: So there was actually a lost serpent mound in Logan County, West Virginia. Uh, There was a man who went out and surveyed it. Um, He was an archeologist, his name was Gary Wilkins. And uh, he kind of teamed up with a local historian and amateur archeologist named Sig Olison. And in 1979, they made an expedition out to this serpent mound and they rediscovered it. They did some tests on it. And so they've dated it back to around 500 BC.
1: Many millennia ago, at the peak of Mount Hermon in the Golan Heights, a group of divine beings known as the Watchers, or Sons of God, descended in an act of rebellion against their king, Yahweh. By teaching them the secret knowledge of the cosmos, they sought to wrestle dominion of the earth away from humanity. They bore children with them, and their offspring were both human and divine. These giants are the demigods of old, And the events that transpired would forever alter the course of human history. At Camp Hermon, we discuss the oddities of the ancient world and their lingering impact on our world today. Welcome. Hey, campers. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Camp Hermon. My name is Chris Price. I've got Tori Peterson here with me. And today we are joined by Josh and Richie from The Sword and Staff. Congrats on the you guys were in the top 10% global global shared yeah through uh spot with Spotify's stuff.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's awesome. It was kind of shocking, honestly. Yeah, it is. Yeah, and I really appreciate that too.
1: You guys full tulip or what? Yeah,
0: yeah. I would say full tulip. Um, I don't know, I don't want to speak for Richie, but Richie is like more Catholic than the Pope, to be honest with you. I think at this point anybody is more Catholic than Francis is. Right. And so But I'll say this, too. I'm a very particular kind of Calvinist. A lot of the Calvinists you run across are very jerky and are very cage stagey and like very argumentative and they want to argue their points. And like, I'm very not like that. And I think used to be. Yeah, I used to be at one point. But I think that a lot of it really comes down to semantics. Uh, I think that a lot of Calvinists like to play word games. Yeah. You know, especially whenever it comes to the whole free will conversation, you know, they're like, well, you know, man has the ability to choose stuff. But his 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 will is bound and he can only choose, you know, X, Y and Z. Yeah. Whereas before he could choose, you know, more than that. I'm just like at the end of the day, dude, it doesn't really matter. Like you're still basically saying that man has an ability to freely choose things (laughs) like, you know, I probably would. Rub a lot of hardcore Calvinists the wrong way. They would probably say that I'm too soft for them. But at the end of the day, that I'm not that jealous. Being having that title, I guess. So I've got people in our church who are Calvinist, and then I've got people in our church who are not Calvinist. And like people are 100 able to like do life together, be in the same church, and like love one another. And so for me, that's that's really the thing. I, I find that a lot of these people are people who spend most of their time like not really a part of a a local church. I think they, you know, and so they kind of substitute that for watching Paul washer sermons or, you know, whatever on, on YouTube. And so that's
1: what they got. Anytime you're just studying theology. Like I went to seminary, like I have a bachelor's degree in Bible. Like when you're, when you're studying theology and that's like what you're spending a lot of your time on is like in the book, studying theology, philosophy, it's really easy to get a critical judgmental spirit if you're if it's just academic. But like so much of that goes out the window when you're actually practically like boots on the ground doing ministry and you're like, who cares? One way or the other, like it doesn't matter. We could sit here and argue that all day. That's not gonna that's not helping the people that are like on the street that are suffering that that they just need the love of Christ, you know what I mean? Like ministered to them. Yeah.
2: Yeah. It's one thing to be in a room full of, full of academics and, and talk shop kind of, but then boots on the ground. It's yeah. Like people on the street do not care about
0: the logical order of God's decrees and whether you're infralapsarian or superlapsarian, <laughs> like they just don't care. Yeah. So I might find that interesting, but not everybody else does. Yep. So
1: yeah, no, I love that. And, you know, it's funny to see how, that the critical judgmental spirit that we know like that's not from that's not from the lord yeah it's interesting to see how that affects people on both sides from like the more charismatic leaning to the more like dry reformed like kind of what that spirit looks like and how it affects the the different sides and it's just it's disgusting all the way around it's interesting to see those those differences and how they kind of play out
0: i'll say this about our church Our church has come a very, very long way in five years. You know, we were uh, the only Reformed church really around. Well, we're the only Reformed church in the Tri-County area. And so we attracted a lot of those cage-stagey Calvinists who were honestly almost materialistic In some sense, like to the point to where they were almost denying the supernatural and that kind of stuff. And whenever I started preaching like divine counsel theology, like it has really shifted (laughs) the way that our church functions. Like they've went from being like very dry, very big culture shock right there. It was very dry, very uh, against the super. I don't just don't understand. I think that a lot of it has to come down with the position on the spiritual gifts for Calvinists. Most of them are all cessationists. And I think that that really affects their view of the supernatural altogether. Like instead of it just being the supernatural gifts aren't in operation today, which I don't believe I'm not, I'm not a cessationist. I think that a lot of them take that further and kind of step into like the supernatural, like, isn't really a reality anymore. And so they become very dry. And that's what I mean by like, in some ways, I think they almost become like like materialists in some ways. And like, so for our church, like they got their worlds rocked really hard the past (laughs) three years when I started preaching divine counsel stuff.
3: a couple weeks ago um we're talking about just about that like how you you can get truth out of anything it doesn't just have to be like like christian tv shows and like christian movies you know because a lot of times those are really cheesy and like because they're taking out like the sin elements they're taking out a lot of the like reality of
2: life yeah yeah. yeah i tell josh all the time like I am not a fan of most Christian a programming. Yeah. Like, a lot of it's
0: really cheesy and yeah. not
2: very well done. I, like I get onto uh, to him all the time about the, uh, what is it? The courageous movie and like fireproof, <laughs> like from that yeah. whole camp, like it's very sort yeah. of almost shallow and like unrealistic to me now. Yeah, it is. Well, that's one of the reasons why I'm glad that we've
0: got friends like Ward from like, who did dark Holler, who's, who's kind of trying to get into the space and to create things that have depth to them you know, that's not yeah. the, yeah, the, I, I see that there is definitely a kind of changing of the tides, I think, in some ways, like there's more and more people coming in, I think, to the space. And it's, I think it's starting to become easier to find really good artistic content than it was, say, 10 years ago.
2: Well, even that. on on topics that the church is just naturally sort of mm-hmm. hesitant to talk about. I mean. You look at those movies like uh courageous and things, and they touch on spiritual warfare, but it's not at all like like how you would experience it in real life. Like, and that's what Dark Collar sort of dove into, and people didn't know how to react to that, especially from a Protestant point of view, like tackling yeah. subjects like exorcism and <laughs> right. and blessings and things like that. It's it was a bit of a an eye-opener.
3: Yeah. Where where can you watch Dark Collar? Because I've heard of it and I, I really want to watch it. But like, where is it?
0: You can now currently watch the first four episodes and the fifth one comes out this week. The fifth one comes out on Friday. So So the last episode comes out Friday. They're for free on YouTube right now. Oh, YouTube. And the first episode has like a hundred. Yeah. The first, the first episode has like 130,000 views or something. I mean, it's ridiculous.
3: Oh, Awesome. Cool.
0: Okay. Yep. So you can totally watch them all there.
3: Okay. Sorry. Continue. Yeah. I think our generation, I mean, like those of us who haven't left the church altogether, I think, you know, like we're kind of more on the page of like, let's go there. Like, let's talk about this stuff. I think that's good.
2: Yeah. I mean, the the church literally has no choice now. Yeah, that's what I was Especially exactly. Especially since about uh, paganism and the new age has stepped into the void to sort of be the, the voice of authority on these, on these, on yeah. this worldview. I mean, we literally have an ultimatum. We either stand up and we take back these categories or we lose an entire generation to paganism, to the new age. So I think so too. I think that just the way that our culture has shifted in the past
0: 10 years the vision of life that you see on a movie like *Courageous* is just oh, not. that's, that's gone. Yeah, yeah, Just, I mean, unless you live in like a super rural place like we do, it's still got some pretty traditional values and stuff like that. Yeah. Like it's mostly it's mostly gone.
2: Like I get it that it's it takes place like in the Bible Belt. Most of those movies, but <laughs> yeah. even life in the Bible Belt isn't quite like is, that. Anymore. Is not like that anymore. Yeah so yeah.
0: yeah so yeah I think the church is kind of in a in a position to where you're gonna have to start addressing stuff like this and I've been telling pastors for a while now like you need to prepare uh with at some point and within the next 10 years to have somebody who shows up, who's going to show up at your church and they're probably going to be experiencing extreme spiritual uh spiritual warfare if not demonic possession with as popular as things like witch talk is <laughs> or you know oh yeah stuff like that
3: yeah, and all the like Reiki stuff and like all the yep. crystals people are getting into. And um, like I'm really into like naturopathic medicine and stuff like you know what I mean, trying to get away from like yep. big pharma and like I have some friends who yep. um who are like nurse practitioners and it's like they're believers, but so many other people in that space are like they're literally like you can go into a doctor's office and they're gonna put crystals on you, you know? Oh yeah, like, this friend I have saw someone like that and she was like, Your spirit guides are here and she was like, Whoa, 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 you know. So it's just They're making that so mainstream, and it's not.
0: So I I do law enforcement, and the amount of people that I see come out of the jails who have Norse paganism tattoos, I mean, it's just shocking, the amount of people. who have got, like, Thor's hammer or stuff to Odin. Norse paganism is super popular in prison right now.
2: Well, if you just think about it, like... Extremely popular. The age of atheism... That was in the seventies, the sixties, the eighties. Even yeah, well, you is, know, is even over. New a- so,
0: even new atheism with Richard Dawkins and yeah, you know the Christopher Hitchens. Christopher Hitchens died of cancer, and Richard Dawkins is basically no, like every he's he said a lot of goofy things over the years, and people just aren't even listening to him anymore. So you mm. know, there's there's been this big meaning crisis, and people have realized I think or starting to realize in very very fast ways that that kind of worldview can't really give you any kind of meaning that and the thing that's there primarily that's easy to find right now is is the new age or paganism. I mean, you just go I mean, Facebook had that whole commercial thing that they were putting out a while back where we talked about that in an episode. Well, it's been a long time ago now. I mean, it was literally about uh manifesting and that kind of stuff. Yeah. And so, I mean, it's just, it's so out there and it's so easy to find. Yeah. Well,
2: even if you think about it, reports of the paranormal demonic possession, just stuff like that is on the rise across the board. I mean, Big time. Everywhere. And people are being faced with it and they're looking for answers. So atheism doesn't have anything to offer. So they either end up in the new age or they come to the church. And for so long, the church, apart from like the higher traditions, like Catholicism, Orthodoxy.
0: Atheism is just going to direct people to big pharma. You know, they're just going to chalk it up as some sort of like mental illness type of thing that needs to be treated with medication. And, you know, Mm -hmm. that's all that there is to it. It's just a really materialistic answer. And so. That's not going to really deal with somebody who's actually suffering from spiritual warfare. So,
3: right can just like numb your senses, yep. I guess, but yep doesn't change what's like actually happening.
0: Right, that's right. Yeah. I'm sorry for talking so much.
3: No, there's like so many different rabbit trails we could go down. I'm sure. Uh, um, I know. Like, how did you guys get started? And then I also want to jump into the trip you guys recently took. Um, want to talk about mounds, Bigfoot, all the good stuff. So. Yeah. How did you guys how do you guys know each other? When did you get
2: started?
0: Yeah. So Richie and I have been friends for about a decade now. (laughs) The way that we described it. We sure
2: didn't start out friends. We
0: sure did not start off as friends.
2: We ended up in common uh, group chats about Mm -hmm. theology and we were at each other's throats a lot. (laughs) We were frenemies for a few years. Yeah. We Uh, ran in similar circles. So we kind of put up with each other for a while. But then. Yeah.
0: But, you know, in the end, it all came together Uh, in 2020, we 2019, 2020, we started talking about doing a podcast and Richie was very, very nervous about that. Richie's
2: very shy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, even just apart from that, like any work I've ever done in the paranormal, I've kept it sort of within my own parameters, like within my own sort of circle of researchers and friends. Like, it's not something that I was ever public about i mean i've had opportunities to be on on paranormal tv like even just more recently the the reboot of the ghost Hunter show like i was offered a spot on that and it's just something that i've never wanted to do in the public spotlight until we kind of got thrown into it
0: yeah dark caller yeah so but in 2020 we really started talking about doing a podcast and then at the end of 2020, towards the end of it, we actually formally started it. 2021 was our first full year of doing it together. And then this is our second full year. Richie and I have just found a lot of common interest. So I just, just full disclosure, I'm a nerd. I, I'm, a, I'm a pastor. I've been a pastor for over half a decade now. Uh, I, I've just been a big reader, uh, just fascinated by all sorts of things. So I have this kind of Nerdy side to me in 2018, 2019, I was introduced to Dr. Michael Heiser's book, The Unseen Realm, and it really kind of jarred me. And uh, I messaged Richie and asked him, uh, since it was kind of sketchy to me, um, if if he had ever run across any of this kind of stuff. And and Richie was a for, is a former pagan. So he actually practiced paganism for how many
1: years did you say? It was
0: at least... Six, seven years. Six, seven years. I was just curious if he had ever encountered a lot of this stuff. And so it was interesting. So the conversations was kind of like my nerdy pastoral academic side meeting his lived experience. You know what I mean? Like he was able to explain to me how a lot of this stuff worked out and how he experienced it and how he used to participate in it. And so that really kind of led to the to Sword and Staff the podcast that we have together. And I was like, you know, I think that we could really help a lot of people and the terminology that we like to use is re-enchant people and their view of the world. Um, if we got together and we talked about this stuff because a lot of people just aren't talking about this stuff. The church in particular in particular is not talking about it a lot. And so we kind of saw a void there and we and we were like, hey, if we could step into this void and really talk about the supernatural worldview of the Bible. And I can come from it, come to it from my perspective. And if you can come to it from your perspective, I think that we could really make sense of a lot of this stuff and probably help a lot of people become re enchanted.
2: Yeah. So. I remember the, the I actually remember the night that you sent me that message and I figured out that you were like looking into divine counsel theology. Like a lot of people in the church misunderstand what that is and they accuse somebody that holds that theology of polytheism right and i was surprised that you knew the distinctions between yeah. there that was just completely shocked and yeah. it just kind of yeah. went from there and so here basically here we are today with you guys
3: <laughs> i love it that's so cool and how cool is michael heiser dr michael heiser he's like yeah i know we don't really do like sainthood necessarily in our modern <laughs> christianity but like i feel like we should nominate him anyway
2: <laughs>
0: yeah saint saint heiser i like that it's phenomenal yeah, his and since then, I mean, I've read everything that Heiser has put out, like literally everything, and I, I have basically an entire shelf in my library dedicated to everything that he's basically wrote. That's I remarkable. mean, he
2: even jumped into
0: yeah, he actually did. Um, we actually did a series, so that basically led to me teaching our church about this stuff. Which in turn rocked their worlds too, but we actually did a series. It was uh, back in 2020, whenever the whole COVID stuff was going on. We did an online series called "The Spiritual Beings of the Bible." Dr. Heiser actually jumped into it in our live stream and was actually interacting with people and commenting and like following along and like it was super cool. And like yeah. he shared it out to his to the people who follow him, and it was super awesome, super humbling.
3: That's amazing. I so badly want to find a church around here that will talk about that stuff. <laughs> it's a big deal. I think. Yeah.
2: There, there, there is a lot of hesitation, especially there's just just a general ignorance is all you can say. It's what? like a blissful ignorance. Like they, they have the categories for these things, but it's, it's a, I think that a lot of people like don't. a taboo or a hesitancy. Well, I think that a lot of it is we have lived
0: comfortably in an, an enlightened materialist materialistic kind of age where we look back on The stuff that the biblical writers said, and not just the biblical writers, but even writers throughout Christendom. We look back at what they said, and we like to kind of turn up our noses and say, No, we know better now. This stuff was, you know, a a part of the ancient imagination. So we've been living in this kind of secularized kind of age. The church doesn't quite know how to respond to it, I think. You've got that going on, and then you, and people just are unfamiliar with. Well, their Bibles, unfortunately, but also church history, so they don't even realize that they have this spiritual heritage that's available to them that can answer a lot of these questions that they're they're getting. So, go ahead, Chris.
1: I love that you teach and you preach on this kind of stuff. Are your sermons? Do you guys have them on a podcast platform where people can go and listen to your sermons?
0: There are some on there. Um, so we've we do have a podcast called Sermons at New Haven. And there are some sermons on there. Uh, we have not updated them in a while. Uh, we we have a, a podcast that we did for a year. You can find it on YouTube called Talks at New Haven. So we used to do a church podcast. We don't do it anymore. It's been discontinued. But we talked about a lot of this divine counsel stuff uh, in in that podcast. You can find a lot of it there. But we are planning on putting sermon audio back up. So that people can access it because we have had a ton of people say the same thing. Hey, we wish that we could find somebody who was preaching and talking about this stuff and see how it actually is happening in a local church. And there, it seems that there's not a lot of people
2: out there doing it. And so we are planning on doing that. Soon. Yeah. And even content creation, like a teaching series and things like that through uh, Sword and Staff YouTube channel. That's content that we're working on yeah. now kind of to expand that channel to yeah. put things like that out there.
1: Yeah. I know like Doug Van Dorn at his church, you know, he, he teaches on this kind of stuff, but his sermons are not on a podcast platform. You have to go to like, you have to have like a special app and then you have to have a spe- like a special login for their, for their church. There's like a code. It's like it's called like sermon audio or something like that. And I'm like, please make your teachings and your sermons like easily accessible and put them on a podcast platform because yeah, there's, there doesn't seem to be very many churches that are willing to even dip their toes into what I call the DCW universe and preach on it and teach on it.
0: There, there does seem to be a a huge need for that out there right now. And we are in the process of basically replanting our church uh we've been around for half a half a decade we've had a lot of new people come in over the years we've had a lot of theological changes over the years um we went from Baptist to being Presbyterian <laughs> and so uh so we're we're like currently in the process of basically revising a lot of our stuff in our church the doctrinal statements Constitution that kind of stuff and I know that for the new year that's one of the things that we're wanting to to focus on is actually putting more sermon content out there in like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, those types of places where it's easily accessible for people to get. So so that should be, I, I think, probably pretty good resource that people could probably uh, you know look for
2: in the, the new year here.
3: That'd be awesome. Richie, can I ask like what kind of pagan practices were you involved in?
2: Um, my practice was very much sort of Appalachian folk magic. So it wasn't tied down to any sort of tradition in particular. So it wasn't a Wicca, like it wasn't a formal religion. It was very nature-based and just an eclectic mix of different beliefs. Let's talk about what (laughs) nature-based
0: means a little bit too, because I don't think that a lot of people know how paganism works. Yeah, it's very much grounded in sort of what we would call now natural revelation. And not even that, but even like divinatory practices, Yeah, right? So one of the things that blew my mind Whenever I started getting into like the ancient sources of the world, especially like the source material that you see, like in Ugarit, um, and then in places like that in the ancient world. We tend to think about the ancient gods speaking to the pagans in a very similar way that Yahweh speaks to Christians, like giving divine revelation written down in a book. Right. And I'm not saying that ancient pagans didn't have sacred texts. I mean, they they did, but one of the main practices that they used to interact with their gods was um, divinatory practices. Like, so for example, you go back to a lot of the Ugaritic stuff and you see that they were doing like heptomancy, which is basically, you know, you're, you're, you know, taking the liver of an animal and you're using it to, to discern if there's any kind of messages or omens in this part of the body. Whenever Richie talks about being nature-based, he's he, he's meaning like looking at natural revelation, but and then also, I guess, using divinatory practices yeah, as it's, well.
2: It's very different than what you see in scripture. In scripture, you see Yahweh with; he has a very tangible sort of presence and a certain way that he interacts with with his people. Like it's it's nothing like you find in paganism. In paganism, you're discerning. I mean, they they commune with various spirits and gods and things like that. But it's very much sign-based and symbolic, like you're looking for their replies to your petitions. You're looking for their interactions through the elements, through nature. It's it's more thought for thought than it is direct communication. I'm
3: interested. I I've grew, I mean, I grew up very much in a bubble, you know, and a Christian bubble. I'm learning a lot. So,
2: yeah, th- yeah, there's definitely a lot that's up to interpretation. So that's where a lot of the divinatory practices come in. It's not like in scripture where you literally have, you know, Yahweh says this, this, this it's in paganism it's there's a lot to be debated and interpreted and a, d- a lot of different divination practices to get to that point
3: well i'm so thankful that yahweh is a god who likes to be clear with us and not cause confusion and not make us guess what he means so
0: yeah it it kind of even gives you an entirely new take and an appreciation for what yahweh means whenever he says that
2: he's not a god of confusion and even just at that you can see how deception is so easily yeah. woven into the, into paganism, like how easily it is to even just spring off cults and things like that, how fast it, grows. fast it grows,
3: okay, so I wanted to ask you guys about serpent mounds, and I know that you recently went on an expedition to go see some serpent mounds. and um I think that they're, I might be wrong about this, but I think there's more in the part of the country you guys are in at least probably than the Midwest where I live. But um, tell me about serpent mounds. Tell me about your experience. Um, My understanding is that they might be like burial sites and that they tend to be accompanied by increased like cryptid sightings and maybe portals and things like that. So tell me about serpent mounds.
2: Yeah. So there's probably the most famous serpent mound that people would, would know is the one in Ohio. Yeah, Adams County, Ohio. And that's yeah. the Great
0: Serpent Mound. There is a lot, there's a big debate about how old it actually is. um You know, from my understanding of a lot of the material that I've read, it looks like that there have been additions to Serpent Mound over the centuries. It, it basically appears to me, from what I've seen, it appears to have been a site that is very old after you know generation to generation there would be new people a new group of people who would come in caretake for it or caretake it and then make additions to it repair stuff that kind of stuff but basically though to answer uh, the question um basically um a lot of them are depicting you know various religious themes like especially uh the one in Adams County Ohio I mean you you have this serpent which, is aligned with the summer solstice. So it's literally aligned with the heavenlies. And at a very particular moment, it's it's depicted as eating a seed, right? Like if you've ever seen it, its jaws are open, and there's this there's this seed that it's devouring. Um, and it during the summer solstice, I actually have a picture of it right here on my on my desktop yeah, right here. Yeah, I see. Um it the the summer solstice aligns directly with the mouth of Serpent Mound, so it, it literally, as the sun sets on the summer solstice, it looks as though the the serpent is devouring the sun. Not only that, but we also know that it's aligned with the constellation Draco. Yep um, the the constellation literally fits within the structure of the Serpent Mound. Um, now, whenever so, if you look at a lot of Native American mythology. Um, and I call it mythology because it's not necessarily a system that's really being participated in in the way that it once was. It's basically depicting in various cultures. You see in a lot of the mythologies, there were a lot of underworld guardians, right?
2: Yeah. And they are, they're serpents, right? And um, yeah, that's a common theme throughout multiple cultures. The world over every culture has this serpent kind of archetype archetype. Deity, and it's always associated with the spiritual realm or the underworld or the afterlife. Yeah, you know some of the thoughts are: is not
0: only is this this kind of guardian of the underworld kind of deal, but it's also this spiritual being that um, can also cause great destruction, right? Like it can cause great destruction, and so one of the things that you need to do is placate it, right? Because if you don't. Then it it can wreak havoc on you. It can bring curses upon you and your family and your crops and all of that sort of thing. So one of the things that you want to do is is placate it. And so a lot of these mounds are attempts at that. Actually, at the Serpent Mound in Adams County, Ohio, at one point there was a stone altar that used to set in the head region of that mound. And apparently, I mean, what do you do with an altar? You, you offer sacrifices on an altar, right? To our expedition. So there was actually a lost serpent mound in Logan County, West Virginia. Uh, there was a man who went out and surveyed it. Um, he was an archaeologist. His name was Gary Wilkins. And uh, he kind of teamed up with a local historian and amateur archaeologist named Sig Olesen. And in 1979, they made an expedition out to this serpent mound. And they rediscovered it. They did some tests on it. And so they've dated it back to around 500 BC. And they attribute it to the Adena Hopewell uh, people from the surveys that are available out there. And they're very difficult to find uh, by Gary Wilkins. Uh, I think the one that we have was in the Tennessee Journal of Archaeology. I would have to look at that source and see what it was it was actually um, said to have been a religious site and it was used for religious purposes. So there's no burials at this mound. It doesn't seem like that they were, this was a place where they were like living or residing. It looked like it was a place where they were going to worship and it sits literally on the top of a ridge on a mountain. And it's very difficult to get to Yeah. Um, basically though, what happened is this mound has been forgotten in Logan County. Um, nobody has, has been here. Um, nobody has, has been to it, uh, since the seventies, no work has been done on it since the seventies.
1: As I will say, I've talked to Judd and, uh, he's down, he's down to be involved. If you guys have another expedition going out, I think you said after December, like in maybe in January. Yeah, we yeah. were
2: yeah sometime in the, here in the new year for sure. Yeah, we're we're planning multiple trips back to it because even during the filming of Shadow Appalachia, we're it's going to require like several trips back. And one of the themes in, that we're exploring actually in Shadow Appalachia is that there's possibly more than one Serpent Mound back there. I mean, I know that in the initial survey they suspected that there could be more, and we have evidence that suggests that there possibly is more. So there's definitely a lot still yet to be. Determined, determined and discovered
1: if you guys are still down, I'd love to I'd love to come out to to one of those with you guys. And, you know, if you have the film crew with you, however, it would it would work for you guys and make sense. um, You know, we could just we can coordinate with Judd for him to maybe FaceTime in, just get him get him involved. And then, of course, I'm sure he would be down to to do some Zoom interviews if you guys want to edit stuff in. Oh, yeah, that would that would be perfect. Yeah, I was just gonna say if you if you keep me keep me in the loop, I'll make sure for sure. We will
0: for sure sh- for sure keep you in the loop on it. Yeah, that would be that would be excellent,
1: honestly. And I know him and uh, Doug Van Dorn are working on a paper for the serpent mound that Doug discovered in Israel. Yeah. Do you guys know about that? Yeah.
0: So I, I've been following that and I am fascinated by that discovery. The thing that I find fascinating about it is that you have this same kind of structure in various places of the world on different continents. You know what I mean? And apparently it's all carrying the same kind of meaning. You know what I mean? It's that is a fascinating, uh, phenomenon. And I'm very, very interested to see Wait. what happens with their findings.
2: Yeah, even if you just look at even at North America, the natives here they'll tell you that they're these serpent mounds, this this imagery, these uh, these sites. There there's some there are things that are that predate them. Like they'll tell you that they're caretakers, and that's something that's controversial around here. But well, it, it's very controversial to the mainstream narrative because
0: yeah. you know the mainstream narrative is this was be- built by the Adina Hopewell, and the reality is is we don't quite even know who they were. Yeah, those are names that we've given those people, and, you know. And whenever you talk to the Native Americans, you know they they try to attribute the building of these mounds to the Native Americans. And one of the things that you commonly hear from them is we did not build them. One of the stories that you see a lot in Native American in Native American mythology is they talk about that there was a race of giants that built them, yeah. <laughs> uh, which is fascinating. Obviously, as a Christian. Uh, And if you understand the supernatural thread that you see running throughout Scripture that you really see in Genesis 6 with the entire story of the sons of God, the daughters of men and the Nephilim and what happens as a result of the connection of the serpents with the Nephilim and things like that. That's right. And, uh, you know, the entire thing with, uh, you know. Of Bashan, the tie in there with it's the serpent, right, and then Mount Hermon—that's literally there uh, in in the backyard of that place as well. There, there is a lot of fascinating overlap with all of this stuff, and I'm very fascinated to see what happens with their findings and what they what they they turn up there. Yeah,
2: you know, this this worship of this sort of serpent. Entity, principality is something that we're looking into, uh, we realize it's something that's widespread across North America, like with uh, with the, an example being the Southern cult. They had this sort of iconography of this serpent being, this winged serpent being, and I mean, it's basically describing a, a seraphim.
0: It's very similar to, you know, uh, Quetzalcoatl in South America or Kukla Khan. They all seem to have this being, right, in all of their- or even their just basic dragons in yeah.
2: Chinese culture and mythology, things right. like that.
0: The Southern Death Cult is what they're called. And they were a uh, the way that you you'll hear them described is they were a complex of uh, Native Americans who did a lot of uh, they were they basically were big time travelers um, they traveled and they they did a lot of trading and they actually came up here into the southern West Virginia area and in a town next door to where we're at called Man West Virginia they actually. Uncovered in Man, West Virginia, what used to be uh, a, a Native American uh, burial ground, and in that burial ground, they actually uncovered iconography from this group that was called the Southern Death Cult. And so, apparently, this group was actually here in the their iconography. Their shamans are used was depicted as these serpent priests and stuff. So, placating um, serpent deities here in this area. So basically um, we have archeological evidence here in Logan County, West Virginia, that this Southern death cult actually made its way here to Southern West Virginia. In man, West Virginia, there was an archeological site. Um, I don't have the book on me here. I would have to, to find it here in my book stack here at the house, but basically they uncovered religious objects and things like that. That belonged to that depicted the iconography of the Southern Death Cult, um, and that's actually on display uh, here in Logan County, West Virginia, at the Chief Logan uh, Museum at the Chief Logan Park. Uh, so you can actually go see that if you'd like to. Um, but it belonged to the collection of a local uh, archaeologist archeolo- named Ron Moxley. But anyway, so whenever you you uncover a lot of the Southern Death Cult's iconography. One of the things that you see very frequently is that they had shamans or priests or whatever language you want to use, and they are depicted as very serpentine. And they were they would have like uh, liturgical vestments that was very serpentine in nature. They were dressing that way. So it's it's apparent <laughs> that it, yep. at some point in the history of our region here in the southern coal fields of West Virginia, there was a uh, Native American cult here that was doing uh principality worship to some sort of
2: serpentine deity yeah and the evidence for that is scattered across Appalachia you can see these stone serpent formations that we're just now discovering in our area and beyond so yeah
3: do you think there are portals next to the serpent mounds and if yes do you think that's how they got there what are your thoughts
2: we yeah we we sort of uh sort of hang on the work of John Keel when it comes to things like window areas and that there are places out there that are naturally anomalous and that the ancient people took notice, to notice of that. these anomalous areas and sort of structured their their worship sites around them. And, and in combination with ritualistic abuse and the natural anomalous sites, you get this back and forth, this mechanism that is a machine for high strangeness and
0: well, even with the the whole portal idea, like, for example, if you if you look at the Serpent Mound in Adams County, Ohio, one of the things that you learn about that area is like Richie is saying it is naturally anomalous. And I don't know if people know this, but Adams County, Ohio, Serpent Mound actually sit, sits in a, an impact crater. Um, Ward actually went out to it and visited it. Uh, I think it was like nighttime whenever he went there. Yeah. But he actually drove like through the, the crater on his way up to it. And uh, but it's called like the the crypto. I'd have to go back and look. I don't have the book here in front of me, but you can Google it, type in Serpent Mount, Adams County, Ohio Crater, you'll find it. As a result of that, that area seems to be naturally anomalous. And so apparently there are a lot of underwater tunnels there, uh, just a lot of caverns and voids underneath the area. The interesting thing is the Native Americans seem to have associated these underworld cavern places with these serpent deities. So it makes sense that if there was a way to possibly access them and go down into the underworld, you would mark that with a sign uh, depicting this, this deity there. Um, So there are literal portals perhaps, and even uh, spiritual supernatural portals at these places as well.
2: Well, yeah, even on a a metaphysical level and a pagan and occult level, anytime you have, uh, the ancients doing ritualistic abuse, like uh, uh, making profane offerings and things like that. You're literally scarring the location energetically, and it creates an access point for their gods to interact with them. So it's literally opening a portal and their worship sustained that opening. And that's yeah part of the environment. Yeah. And I mean, that's something that we have in our
0: Christian worldview is there is sacred space, which Dr. Mike Kaiser talks about, obviously. And then there is profane space. Right. And profane space is the place where the gods reside and where they interact with people. I mean, just think about like um, Jesus in Mount Hermon. Right. Like, That's right. Yeah. yeah. Think about Jesus and Mount Hermon. Right. Whenever he's standing at the grotto of Pan at Caesarea Philippi. Right. This mm-hmm. is a profane space that was used mm-hmm. for devotion to Pan. You know, not not only that, but just think about the city of israel right it's this sacred space that's set apart to yahweh and there is a temple where the, the theophonic glory cloud of yahweh comes down and interacts with the priesthood and then outside of the city whenever where they would send the scapegoat on the day of atonement ritual they would send it out to a desert spiritual being that's uh, you know demonic named azazel so that's profane space right you think about it you're you're sending the scapegoat which is carrying what sin out of the camp and you're you're sending something that's profane out into a profane space. So what you're saying there Richie about those categories that you came across in the the occult, those are categories that we have as Christians and that are totally biblical. And so yeah, it's the same thing with these spaces, right? These are places that were set apart for the worship of of principalities, they were liminal spaces and because of that, it's no wonder that they that people experience strange phenomenon
2: and in these even places. just looking at the way that jesus interacts with the grotto of pan there like he identified it's identified as a gate mm-hmm. and it's a portal it's a doorway so
3: the gates of hell right
2: that's right yeah, the, the gates, gates of, of hell, hell. Yeah. that's right
3: that's cool that makes a lot of sense so it's kind of a chicken and egg situation like not so much that a portal opened because there was a serpent mound but maybe there was already weird stuff going on so they built a serpent mound
2: yeah well, it's, it's yeah. they very much play off of each other
3: yeah, right, like a vicious cycle cuz then like the pagan practices they do at the serpent mound like continue inviting things and yeah,
2: sustain it. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, when you looked deeper into it, it's it becomes so blurred that you can't tell one which comes first. Like it's they just play off of each other. Yeah.
3: Interesting. Do you guys have okay, kind of switching gears, but kind of not. Um, Do you have any stories about Bigfoot in those areas?
2: (laughs) Actually, West Virginia happens to be considered the Bigfoot hotspot of the East Coast. Uh, If you've watched any sort of show on the Travel Channel or anything else that depicts uh, Bigfoot sightings this way, West Virginia features heavily, especially on the show Finding Bigfoot. I mean, every other episode they're here. The guys from that show have done lectures uh, around the state. Uh, there's a Bigfoot museum here. Uh, West Virginia's take on Bigfoot is it's known as the hairy man. I know Ohio has the grass man and things like that, but it's there's definitely widespread reports of things like that here. Let me also say this. West Virginia is a
0: cryptid hotspot. Yeah, in general. Like not only do we have Bigfoot sightings here, but we also have the infamous Mothman and Flatwoods monster. And there's Lots
2: of sightings of, of that kind of stuff here as well. And whether it's Bigfoot, uh, things like Birdman that we that's later linked to Mothman and Flatwoods Monster, any of these cryptids, we link back here to of the elemental spirits of the region yeah, that were interacted with by the, the natives. So here we have a thing called the Wampus Cat. And when you look into it, it's a black Panther. panther-like cat that's associated with the underworld. And you see that in South America too, but here, West Virginia is famous for their Black Panther sightings, and a lot of people don't make those connections. But we we really take the view of cryptids that they're more spiritual Spiritual. in nature. They They can manifest in physical ways, and they have physical aspects sometimes, but primarily, they are spiritual manifestations. Well, and you actually see that with Mothman. Mothman actually has
0: a very fascinating folklore, let's call it, that connects to spiritual beings. So, Here's a little West Virginia folklore for you folks back in uh, whenever uh, Point Pleasant, West Virginia was a a settlement village. OK, or not a settlement village, but a contact village. OK, and basically what that means is it's a place where um, people from Europe right, or wherever it was that they came from. They all came- it was the English, the French. They all right. traveled
2: the canal and
0: the Ohio. Rivers. That's right. And they, so there was a village in Point Pleasant and it was headed up by a man. Named Chief Cornstalk. Chief Cornstalk was the father of a female named Princess Aracoma, who's actually buried in downtown Logan. Yeah. Um, so there's an interesting connection point there between Logan County, West Virginia, and Point Pleasant. So basically, here's how the, the story goes. Okay. You know, basically Chief Cornstalk was betrayed by some of the uh the men who came over from from uh Europe. And whenever they murdered him, I think it was him and his son, he put a curse on Point Pleasant, right? And then uh, he was, you know, they were also worshiping this deity, if you want to call
2: it, called uh, the Great Spirit, right? The Thunderbird. you know, Yeah, they link kind of, it to the Thunderbird or just a Birdman archetype.
0: Right. Now, the interesting thing is, is in the initial sightings of the Mothman, the Mothman was actually referred to as what, Richie? As the Birdman. As the Birdman. And then over time it kind of takes on this uh moniker of of the moth man. So it's interesting though that it appears in Point Pleasant in a place where a place that's tied to principality worship was also originally called the Birdman. There's there's a thematic connection there.
2: Well, just metaphysically, you the ancients they generate the worship and the the sort of focused intention that the elemental spirits need to thrive and manifest. So point when uh Cornstalk was murdered. He cried basically cried out for vengeance and for his gods to sort of take up his murder and carry out justice. And yeah. they think of uh the mothman as a manifestation of that curse, as the, one of their principalities, their their spirits that they worship, sort of acting out in vengeance on his behalf. Yeah. So we basically view a lot of the cryptid phenomena as
0: to kind of use like the language of John Keel, is kind of a mask that they they wear, right? That's kind of specific to people, and that they they recognize and that kind of stuff. And actually, even Bigfoot has a lot of Native American. I was going to say, if,
2: well. if just diving back into Bigfoot, I'm the the way Bigfoot is traditionally understood is very materialistic, and it's sort of tied like to Darwin and things like that. It's very. The The approach that it's some flesh and blood undiscovered creature mm. is very a mo- much a modern take. Yeah, You talk to any culture that's ever encountered this being and they'll all tell you that this thing is primarily spirit. They talk about it being able to camouflage itself with the environment or the natives describe it walking at the speed of light or being able to shift in and out of reality. So there's a lot of spiritual aspects to these cryptids, Bigfoot including. And I think you see that in in the cryptozoological world even today, like there's this shift from this natural sort of materialistic view of Bigfoot being this undiscovered animal to it being something more. Yeah. Well, if you, if you look at the name Sasquatch, right, Sasquatch was actually that's actually
0: an anglicized um, name that was actually given to this being by the First Peoples of America. Like, so those are Native American people. So this
2: is apparently
0: a phenomenon that they were encountering and oh, no experiencing as well. Every
2: culture around the world has their own take on Bigfoot. They have their own archetype, their hairy man archetype. And these were cultures that had no contact with each other. So they and they all describe the same thing and all describe the spiritual aspects of this creature. So that's sort of yeah our take on it. Yeah. And so if you we try to filter this through the
0: whole DCW worldview kind of thing. And so I think that the conclusions that we've kind of drawn about them are, are these are masks that the, the spiritual beings take on and manifest themselves with to, to people. Um, And I think that you could understand a ton of high strangeness and phenomena that is associated with high strangeness with that lens, whether that be, UFOs, UAPs, whatever—you um, can tie it back to I think this this singular Genesis
2: Six event. Yeah, and I know people in the paranormal today, the and mainstream investigators that are starting to approach cryptid cases, especially Bigfoot, from a very mm. sort of occult perspective, like That's building right. communication altars for Bigfoot and right. using uh, paranormal equipment to communicate spiritually with with Bigfoot. It's 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 taken this dramatic shift. Well if you if you if you're familiar with the the Docu series Hellier,
0: you can yeah. find it on YouTube for free as well. This is the exact approach that you see being taken there. They approach this phenomena as though they are dealing with some sort of trickster spirit that uses different kind of masks to appear to people. and they are using exactly what you're talking about. They use divinatory practices to to make contact with them. They don't treat it necessarily as a as a flesh and blood undiscovered cryptozoological animal. No,
2: we're not saying that it can't be that's like right. a very physical manifestation going on with these things. I that's mean right. that you can actually document their presence and their interact with these things like you can with a spirit. But primarily, they are spirit in essence first.
0: Right, and then like I mean, and that's there's a biblical category for that too, right? I mean, Jacob wrestles with an angel. Yeah. Right, and angels are are spirits, right? So apparently there is some sort of a physical element to these beings, right? Apparently they they have the capability of of manifesting themselves in a physical way.
1: What happens when one of them is killed when they're manifesting physically? We have a friend who is a Department of Defense contractor and he's he came on in episode 5 and told us some stories. And one of the things that he told us was that uh, he personally knows agents that are a part of a secret government cryptid task force, and they are under the guise in many states, they are under the the guise of the Department of Natural Resources. And I spoke with him last week on an episode that's going to drop who knows when. And he said they have two categories. One is natural and the other is supernatural. And under the natural category, they have Dogman, Werewolves, and Bigfoot. And he said that you can kill them and that when, when they are killed, sometimes they will dispose of the bodies on site. Other times they will fly them to a base they have, I believe, there in West Virginia, either Virginia. I think it's either the Virginia or West Virginia. I can't remember which to a base, secret base that they have there.
0: Well, you're speaking Richie's love language right now. Well, I mean, whenever me, you talk about government secret organizations
2: uh, with to me, stuff, to me, just a uh, cryptid having a physical vessel is no different than a nephilim. Like uh, that's exactly what I'll yeah, say. So it's this coming together of heaven and earth. There's a physical embodiment of this of these spirits. I mean, the bodies of the the physical vessels of the nephilim were destroyed in the flood. And yet you see them in spiritual form in what we know as the demons today. That's right. So,
0: yeah, that's, that's exactly the same approach that I was going to take as well.
2: They can be incarnate, disincarnate. Yeah.
0: Right. Even the same in this. Yeah. That's what I would say too. Like even, even though the embodied aspect of it perhaps is killed like the Nephilim, you still have the spiritual, uh, the spiritual aspect to it that is still apparently roaming the earth and can even take on re-embodiment in some way. So that's, that's probably the way that I would approach it too.
3: I listened to an episode of the confessionals recently. Actually, it was like a four way crossover episode, but, um, they were talking about this guy kept using the word meat suit. So that's what I keep thinking of right now, but like basically these spirits can put on like meat suits, like a costume with flesh.
2: Yeah. And if, yeah, if you if you've watched the series Supernatural like they the the guys talk about people that are demon possessed, the demons talk about wearing various meat suits and things like that. So yeah, it's the same kind of thing.
3: Yeah, I haven't seen it, but I mean that that makes sense to me, you know, and whether it's like, you know, whether it's like Bigfoot or I don't know if, like, the gray aliens are the same. I don't really know. But that makes sense to me, just that they're, like, spirit beings that can kind of, like, borrow, like, bodies and go do whatever they want to do. And then...
2: No, there's precedent for that in Scripture. You see angels taking on physical form. These spiritual beings, they have physical essence and presence and manifestation. So there's definitely precedent for that. Yeah.
0: talk about Shadow Appalachia? Yeah, yeah, we'll talk about that a little bit. So we've got some projects going on right now. Obviously, one that people are probably most familiar with as of now is obviously the podcast, but another one that people are probably familiar with is Dark Holler.
2: So Shadow Appalachia sort of builds on the threads and categories that we establish towards the end of Dark Holler.
0: Well, let me let me explain Dark Holler for people too, because I'm sure that Coming, you know, this audio being shared out on your podcast feed and in our podcast feed, you're you're going to get introduced to an entirely new audience, and we're probably going to get introduced to an entirely new audience. So they may not be fa- familiar with Dark Holler, but Dark Holler is a five-part docuseries that basically traces the story of a female who basically ended up at our church who is practicing uh witchcraft and was invoking known ancient demonic spiritual beings like Lilith, which you know you see referred to in scripture, uh, you know, in the Hebrew Lilu and Lilatu and you know all that kind of stuff. Sort of a classification of spirits. Yeah, classification of spirits. Yeah.
3: Wait, this was at your church?
0: Yes, this was at our church. She ended up at our church and she is the sister uh and sister-in-law of of one of our elder candidates and his wife. But basically she ended up at our church and the story basically uh, tells the story of her exorcism and how uh, she was delivered from the darkness and how she um, came to know Christ. And it also chronicles that this isn't just something that she experienced, but it's something that her entire extended family experienced. And it goes back way deeper than her. Um, So I'm not, I'm not going to spoil the story. You guys need to go check it out if you yeah. It, it
2: it starts with her. It starts with Kristen. It zooms out to her family, then something that's experienced culturally yep. and regionally. Yeah, and then we sort of lay out the foundation for the current work that we're doing, which is called Shadow Appalachia.
0: Yep. And so Shadow Appalachia is kind of like Richie said, is zooming out from this particular girl and this particular place to the to region the in general, the phenomena in Appalachia. In general. And so we're looking at some of the stuff that we talked about today, right? We're looking at Bigfoot sightings in Logan County, West Virginia. We're looking at the Southern Death Cult in West Virginia. We're looking at Serpent Mounds in West or in Logan, West Virginia. We're looking at um UFO stuff in Logan County, West Virginia. We're hauntings. looking at hauntings yeah. like the, the the ghost of Mamie Thurman, which is also very uh, famous and tied to this area as well, and kind of putting together what we're calling a unified theory to understand all of this phenomena here in this part of Appalachia. And it's basically coming. And through, how it's all related and interconnected. Yeah, and how it's all related and interconnected, and we're approaching that through this DCW kind of lens. So um, that's the current project that we're working on there. So you can find dark Holler, Uh It's up to episode four, episode five releases this Friday. You can find those for free on YouTube. If you want them ad free, um, it, you can, they're on Vimeo. Uh, there's a link there in that you can go there and you can check that out and you can buy it. You can rent it, whatever. Um, but as of right now, there is a trailer. To, I think there's two trailers, There's two up, trailers, two trailers up for shadow Appalachia, in the work that we're doing there on the dark holler channel as well. We are also doing that in partnership with Tony Merkel at Merkel media as well. Um, so from the confessionals podcast, podcast. so Tony actually has a trailer up on the confessionals page on his YouTube as well. And yeah, so you can kind of keep up with that project there and the serpent Mound that we talked about today does make a very quick appearance in the most recent trailer as well so if you want a kind of glimpse of it it's in there it's very quick you've got to be looking for it but it's in there and uh these stories are going to be told in this new docuseries called shadow appalachia so you can keep up with that work there you can find it on the sword and staff i think it's on the sword and staff it's no 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 it's on the there's a shadow appalachia channel on youtube you can find it on the dark holler uh channel on youtube and on the confessionals channel on youtube so we kind of some cross pollination going there with it. Also go ahead. Sorry. Yeah.
2: Or it's all linked to our website,
0: swordandstaff.net. You can find more information there at www.swordandstaff.net. Also just keep one of the best ways to just keep up with everything is in our our podcast, right? We talk about this stuff on a regular basis. We drop new episodes every week. Uh, We do collaborations with people. Uh, We do standalone episodes where we talk about this type of stuff. Um, we we try to keep people in the loop. We we usually have a section at the end of every show where we talk about this kind of thing. Yep.
3: Yeah. Thank you guys so much. This was like the fastest hour ever, and I'm so excited about all the projects you're working on. I'm literally on the edge of my seat. So.
1: <laughs> well, thank you very much for having us, Richie Josh from the Sword and Staff Podcast. Guys, check them out.
3: Yeah. Thank you guys so much. Love to do this again.
1: Absolutely.